this is Oliver from the Present Group, and you're about to listen to an interview with Christine Wang Yap. We just wanted to apologize for the sound quality. The Skype is going in and out, and there's some background noise that includes sirens and whatnot. So, enjoy. Hello, I'm Eleanor Hanson Wise. And I'm Oliver Wise. And we're here with Christine Wang Yap. Hi, Christine. Hello. And we're going to talk about her work today. It's August 12th, 2012, and hope you enjoy it. Um, Christine, maybe you could start off, um, for people who haven't seen your work, just explaining, maybe starting with the piece for the present group, and then just talking about your work a little bit more generally. Sure. For the present group, we're making a cut holographic vinyl screen printed poster slash sticker sheet. So the image is a series of ribbons that I styled and photographed and they're kind of, they are styled in a way so that they resemble banners that might be filled in with text that you'd see in like tattoo art or commercial graphic design or like symbolist paintings. Um, But here they're just the ribbons so they're kind of blank and people could fill them in literally or figuratively in their imagination. Then each of those ribbons are um, in holographic vinyl and they're cut out so that people can take them off and stick them where they want or not. And then there's going to be three colors of screen printed ink to kind of show the design on the holographic vinyl. Oh, and then my work. (laughs) So I make installations, sculptures, works on paper and multiples around themes of optimism and pessimism. And most recently I've been looking into positive psychology, uh, happiness, and especially at pleasure and modest ambitions and the decorative impulse. Um, so a lot of my work lately has been about irrational exuberance and these kind of different modes of like accessible pleasure. A lot having to do with like discount store culture and like these cheaper materials and still trying to see if there's a way to kind of get these irrational or unexpected emotions out of such kind of base materials. What do you what do you mean by irrational exuberance? Can you explain that? Sure. I'm really attracted to the phrase. Well, of course it it means it's most often used for like the housing crisis and situations like that where people economics get skewed, like the value of things seems more than they actually are. I just like the phrase for those two words in particular. Emotions are kind of on the other end of the spectrum of thought. Um, they're not something that we can control necessarily. So the idea that something like a feeling like exuberance might be rational or irrational, I think kind of embodies like a paradox that I'm trying to explore in the work. Because so much of my work is trying to be grounded in positive psychology, and yet at the same time, a lot of the work is just very much about like pleasure. So I, I guess it, it kind of is like a, a these two ideas, like a science or a rigor and then this total, like, you don't actually need any reason to be happy or to look at pleasant things or to have pleasant things in your environment. So so I kind of like that juxtaposition, I guess. Well, let's let's start talking. Let's, let's talk about sparkles. Okay. <laughs> Clearly, they're great. Um, <laughs> And it seems like in a lot of your work, you sort of have this vocabulary of things that are awesome. You know, you use a lot of glitter, neon and metallic. But 
you know, and there seems to be quite, a, there's a number of artists that have started to incorporate these things. And I was just wondering um, what attracts you to this and what's, what's at the root of it for you? Mm, maybe it has to do with, because I've been thinking about optimism and pessimism for a while. And one of the materials I've been working with to explore optimism and pessimism is light and dark. Because, you know, that's a very clear analogy. Everyone understands that, like, on a very basic level. Um, that light represents illumination or knowledge or hope. And then darkness represents the opposite. Not knowing or pessimism or not having hope. So I, I guess a lot of the use of color and then the use of sparkly color especially comes out of that. And I, I think... It's so like easy and tacky too. There's like an appeal in trying to work with it to make it to make it work on my own terms. And I think it's also challenging in that way where people see it and they recognize it and they think they understand the work uh, you know on this on this very like appearance level. Do you ever worry about you know overdoing them? Uh-huh. <laughs> no. I think one of the, the challenges that I'm aware of is that talking about happiness can seem very superficial or trite. Um, you know, like to declare yourself an optimist is to align yourself with like Pollyanna. And then, you know, the next step is when people say someone's a Pollyanna, it's because they're unrealistically optimistic. So I think there's definitely this, this kind of, there's like an easy critical position of talking about happiness or using bright colors or exuberant sparkly things but I I also think to get beyond that and to still carry on that conversation is really interesting do you consider yourself an optimist I would like to be <laughs> um I try to be I would like to consider myself an optimist I think my actual nature is more of a pessimist or a skeptic um but I work on being an optimist, and I think that's totally valid, too. Like, not everyone's going to be born optimist. And actually, optimism is a skill that people can learn. So right now I'm reading this book by Elaine Fox called Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain. And I'll put this in my list of annotated links. She is, like, really great at driving home the point that optimism is not just, like, being positive about the future, but it's being able to think about the future in positive terms and being able to act towards it. Like optimism has all these benefits for people because they enact, they, because it shapes their behavior, not so much their thought, you know, like their thought shapes their behavior and reinforces their thought. So it's, it's like a much bigger cycle rather than just thinking positively. Mm. Thinking about that definition of optimism, then I can consider myself like, an optimist in the making, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like in some of your positive signs series, the, the idea comes through that optimism is, is sort of, it's just a tool. It's like a set of tools that you can use. Like the one that comes to mind is, is how the optimist, when something positive happens, they internalize that. And when some, something negative happens, they externalize that. Mm -hmm. like, so it's just a matter of learning learning these tools, like sure. the skill set that you have to develop. 
yeah, and practiced. Mm-hmm. Did, how did you start exploring the subject matter? Was there sort of a specific reason or did you just gradually come to it and develop it? I think my work for many years was fairly skeptical. Like I made a lot of work about consumer culture and alienation. Hmm. When I started working with optimism and pessimism, I realized like my work was really pessimistic. Hmm. And of putting optimism on this pedestal, whereas associating pessimism on this just everyday life stuff, like looking for parking and being stuck in traffic or waiting in line at the supermarket. And I realized like there's so many things that are so common are pessimistic, then I'm making optimism very rare and kind of transcendent and, and impossible to achieve. So I guess now where my work is at is trying to make optimism at least as common as like these kind of daily life things. So I guess I've swung to the other extreme, at least in terms of my work. Right. You want to talk about your positive signs series and um, tell us about your research and the theories that you've discovered? Sure. I started reading positive psychology in 2009 at a residency called the Breeze Residency at Chinese Art Center in Manchester three-month-long residency and I read like eight books and I found like the most optimistic book I could find which is Dreams of My Father, Barack Obama and then the most pessimistic book I could find which is The Road, Cormac McCarthy and then I read some other like positive psychology books. From there I realized you know all these things that we talked about that optimism and pessimism rather than just given traits or a kind of simple binary, either you look at the bright things or the dark things, either the glasses half empty or half full. Rather kind of looking deeper at all the psychological research that's being done in this emerging field and realizing how much room there is to kind of grow my practice within this. So, and then also seeing like that so much of the research ties into what artists do and and what artists need to do in order to make their practice sustainable. So in a way, like when I had the opportunity at SFMOMA to contribute this column, it, it was just a, it was a perfect kind of fit of being able to speak to art audiences and kind of help audiences understand what artists do and then kind of help artists get these tools for being strategic about how they operate their practices and how they think about their opportunities within the art world. Because being an artist, you're constantly dealing with rejection. I think, you know, applying to competitions or like feeling like you're always seeing like your peers rise and then just feeling like this idea that like struggle is good for an artist, I think is also something that I would like to reconsider or have like other artists talk about more in terms of actually there should be more opportunities for artists and and yeah being an artist is hard but it doesn't mean this like noble suffering is the only way to achieve great art so I think yeah having that opportunity it, it made so much sense to bring kind of this positive psychology research into that venue it seems like Possibly what you're reading is uh, is probably fairly dense. 
How do you go about distilling it? Do you, do you end up going through a lot of iterations of the drawings before you sort of settle on a way that communicates it best? Well, a lot of mass market books, but the great struggle in positive psychology is to distinguish themselves from positive thinking and self-help. So a lot of the researchers take pains to really explain like every single thing that they're saying is backed up by all these different studies. It's not like reading that I'm used to doing. So I actually take notes longhand in my sketchbook and they're annotated with the page number in case I have to go back and uh, have all these, um, like I've developed all these abbreviations for different words. Mm. Experience or aesthetics or optimism, pessimism, my cheap way of doing like shorthand. But so having all these notes in my sketchbooks helps a lot in terms of starting to do the positive signs and it's easy to just go through them and kind of highlight the, the ideas you want to focus on or the quotes that are really good and then kind of figure out the drawings from there. And usually do like a scale pencil sketch and then I can see like which ones will work and which ones won't and then just do the eight and a half by 11s from there. I wanted to talk about this edition a little bit more. I keep thinking about it and you know, there's this this tension in it because you've made this beautiful poster, but the fact that there are stickers really complicates it because I'm t- I'm personally torn between the loss of the poster and the and taking taking the sticker and then where do I you know put it? If I remove even just one sticker, then the poster is sort of lost. I was wondering if that that was sort of your intention because I feel like that is where the the meaning almost lies for it you know do we preserve that potential or utilize all these different things to make something new huh that's an interesting dilemma I think yeah it's funny because I feel like participatory or interactive art always has this dilemma where like when you give up authorship and allow the audience to participate it's also harder to critique what the artist has done. Mm. It's a really interesting thing. I haven't really thought about it that much. I will say one of the things I'm really interested in is, so there's this one positive psychologist I'm really into. His name is Mahai Chexamahai. It's like the hardest thing to spell. (laughs) You'll see it's like the one where there's so many consonants in a row. But he's done a lot of work around creativity and flow. And one of the ideas that he keeps going back to is this this idea of a symbolic ecology. So this is where my interest in the decorative impulse kind of ties in is, you know, whether you're an artist or not, or an art collector or not, having an environment that is conducive to what you do, who you are, who you want to be, is really important that there's he's saying like there's like a healthy benefit to being able to see yourself and your ambitions and your achievements reflected in your immediate environment so i i could see how like having these glittery stickers is a way of demonstrating your your environment or your just expressing yourself within your home 
I could see that tying in. Let's see. I mean, I, you know, the pieces that this poster comes out of, there's like a series of banners that I've done where they're just transparencies over gift bags. Mm-hmm. And they, they aren't stickers. But I do see them as like interactive, very minimal way in the sense that you could imagine like text. Like I think of them as text-based pieces without the text. So I, I imagine that viewers imagine something in there. Yeah, I mean, there, it's sort of a double potential of this piece. There's the potential of what could, you could possibly be celebrating, you know, what you would put on the banner. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the potential of putting this sticker, this beautiful sticker, sparkly and colorful. Not a sticker that you normally see, and then where would you put it? What deserves that celebration? Yeah, I guess I I do think of myself as a conceptual artist, and this is exactly like the kind of conceptualization around an art object that I'm more interested in, than just the visual or formal experience of the work. Mm-hmm. I was actually thinking about how you you sort of reclaim cliches almost, you know, the the banners, like you were saying, there's there are a lot in design or tattoo culture and, um, you know, you work with like rainbows and storm clouds and pennant flags. Do you see the, the cliches sort of as a, um, not in a bad way, but just do you see it as a sort of entry point into a discussion? Yeah, I think, um, well, you know, I think in my kind of cosmology of pessimism, like the mundane materials represent all these limits to reality. Like, I think if you go to the art store and you want to buy a certain color of paper, but there's only so many kinds of paper, and you realize further back along the line, someone decided that these are the colors that will sell, and this is what we can bring to market. And then you're at the end of this kind of chain. <laughs> and then everything that goes further down from the chain from you and this one piece of paper is kind of like derivative of this much longer chain of material history. So, so when I kind of thought about things that way, it was very kind of limiting and frustrating and, and pessimistic. But then I guess I had this experience when I was... Also in Manchester, they have a lot of pound shops, so like discount stores, like dollar stores. And I I realized so much of what's in those stores, there's a lot of stuff that's functional and there's a lot of stuff that is not about function. It's more about decoration or just feeling good or just adding some more decoration to your life. There's garden gnomes, rhinestones for your nails, like, you know, posters, a lot of fake flowers. And, you know, of course, I think we associate that kind of stuff with cheapness or, like, tackiness. But then who really is to judge? Because in the same way that you can, you know, have art installer friends who have to go install, like, fancy Delftware plates at rich people's houses in Woodside. And they have their, like, um, 
dessert spoon from Mall of America and stuff. So I think everyone has these collections and I prefer to see them in this more like equalized way and try and challenge that class hierarchy, I guess, of like who's to say what is what is more valuable or less valuable or less more or less valid for their owners. Well, also there's, you know, the question of when you work with a dollar store material and you make something new, then it becomes, it enters sort of a different, a completely different price point, sort of, you know, and different class of people who can access those materials. Well, it's funny because I, that's true, but then I also think it's not true in some ways. Like I, I, I also wonder what curators think of my work and if my work flies as contemporary art or not. I mean, of course, these questions of value have been like going on for you know the last hundred plus years, but I, I also, I, I also wonder like by working with these materials, do people have a harder time thinking that I'm serious about my work, you know, that like interesting dialogues you know, going on with the work. Well, as far as the reception of your work, you've written that you um, your work can be considered a barometer of optimism or pessimism. Do you view your shows sometimes at, and works as a way to learn about a particular community or an audience's mental state? Um, I think, I guess I would, I would, I guess it's more like of an internal reaction. And when I have the opportunity to hear about people's reactions to the work, I do think that does speak to their kind of trust or skepticism or cynicism. It is really interesting. So I had this show at site school in Oakland called Irrational Exuberance Assorted Colors. And I organized this panel with Patricia Maloney from Art Practical kind of she moderated it and it was really interesting because people kind of got into this debate about whether I was sincere or not or whether I was being ironic like whether I was taking these like kitsch materials and kind of pointing out how impossible it is to achieve happiness which is quite the opposite of what I was intending Mm -hmm. and I thought it was a really I thought that well that was a very interesting dialogue to be a part of the you also have that earnestness theorem <laughs> sort of relates right it's like the the viewer's mindset how the viewer's mindset affects their interpretation of the piece or in, affects the their interpretation of the artist's intent yeah did you did you develop that theory um I, um actually there's two people who helped out with that I mean, I, I kind of like posed the question and then Anu Vikram, the curator, she posed like one of the, she responded one way and then Anthony Daniel Ryan, the artist, responded in a, in a different way. And I kind of figured out how to illustrate them in a way that was kind of in parallel so you could contrast them. And so each of those was one of their responses, each of, one, each of the sets. Yeah. I wanted to talk about language a little bit, mm-hmm. especially your ribbon texts. When you're hand sewing them, 
and the phrase is sort of going over and over in your head, does that word then take on a new meaning for you or does that word become ingrained sort of in your psyche? Is that, is that why you choose to hand sew them? Yeah, well, I feel like I should clarify. I make them by hand, but I sew them on a machine. Because okay. that would be a lot slower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I also have been making a few of them into like postcards that I'll send out to people. And some people tell me that they that they keep it on their desk and it really reminds them like to you know, I think think good thoughts or fortify good attitudes is one that people seem to really respond to. And I love the idea of it kind of living on in this way. I send them out around Chinese New Year. Mm. I love the idea that it lives on throughout the year in this kind of different way than if you saw a work of art and then moved on and then the rest of the year didn't have this kind of constant reminder. And you think by by doing it by in this handmade way it that's what allows it to stick around, sort of? I don't know. As opposed to just maybe printing it on a card. It would be more disposable. Yeah, you know, I think for me, like the idea of making it, it's not so much about my own like internalization of it, as much as for me it's important that it's a work of sculpture. This is a material thing rather than graphic design because actually I'm participating in this billboard art festival in Poland and they wanted to use some of those ribbon texts and they wanted me to make a new one in Polish and um, you know things that you learn through art are so random and bizarre but I didn't know that in Poland they don't have a cursive Z like our cursive Z it's like a regular Z zigzag Z so I sewed it, and then I had to fix it. And they're like, you can just do it in Photoshop. Let's do it in Photoshop. And I was like, no, that's like a totally different thing. So I, I did have to like re-sew it and reshoot it. But there's something about the idea that it lives in space, that it does exist in this material, that is really important about the piece to me, at least. Why, I mean, why is that important? Do you feel like it turns the word into sort of a material or like a, you know, it sort of solidifies it in some way or something like that? Maybe like the opposite, actually. Maybe like, because like the way I imagine these ribbons taking form in this word, I guess it's about magic or air or something, like... I'm sorry, what and or air? Magic? Magic? I don't know. I guess, like, ribbons are these decorative fabrics that are associated with girls' hair or, like, flags. You would tie them onto, like, a, a stick or something and wave it around, you know, like a maypole or something, where their function is celebratory whereas if it was just like a stripe that I did in Photoshop it doesn't have the same associations okay um, we're gonna switch gears a little recently you left the Bay Area and moved to New York how does it compare uh, can you be more specific 
in let's talk about just the art world just art related see art scene yeah like career stuff sure well i've been in the bay area pretty much all my life and i've shown at a ton of nonprofits and one or two commercial spaces but i was basically felt like uh, you know i felt like i was spinning my wheels like i wasn't sure what else I could achieve in the Bay Area. And actually, when I had the opportunity to move to New York, it was a great cover because it was because my husband was going to grad school. So it wasn't for me to make it big in New York. So I was really grateful to not have that, to not go under that cliche. Mm-hmm. How I found it here is that I've been really fortunate to have a small community of ex-Bay Area people living in New York. So. A lot of the people I know and I work with in terms of like my day jobs are through the CCA, the California College of the Arts community. And then also in terms of a lot of my art stuff, you know, a lot of it has happened, like my shows has happened through this small community as well. If I didn't have this little foothold, I'm not sure what I would do because I still feel like beyond this community, it's really hard to, to gain a foothold and feel like I can start showing or know who to pitch like certain proposals to or whatever. But definitely having access to this much art is amazing and overwhelming. And I, it's very much like an embarrassment of riches here, like to have world-class institutions that are constantly showing great shows. It's, it's amazing. I mean, maybe that leads into our last question, which is, what is the value of art? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's a doozy. What is the value of art? Well, I think about art and art objects as, like, artifacts. Well, you know, it's like, basically, there's this other book by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, as well as his co-author, Rick E. Robinson, where like the Getty commissioned them to study art from this psychological perspective. And then this will be in positive science, but it's not on SFMOMA's blog yet. It'll be up, I think, later. They kind of talk about art objects as kind of instigators or, or like props that offer aesthetic experiences. And they talk about like four dimensions of aesthetic experiences, like communicative, emotional, intellectual, and visual. I love, like for me, that's something I've been thinking about for a while, like how much viewers bring to the work and how their attitudes and emotions inform the work, whether they trust it and want to engage with it more, whether they're skeptical of it, and kind of seeing parallels with basic evolutionary psychology, our approach or withdrawal instincts, you know? So in one sense, to to think about that question in these terms of, of like, sometimes like our objects are just dumb objects and they're really like mirrors in a way for what you bring to it and project to it or how much compassion you can extend to it so that you can get beyond your own cultural milieu to understand a different time and space, you know? So I guess that's one way of thinking through that question. Great. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome.